If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, the show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back everyone to the 226th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. In this episode, we're going to talk about healthy eating versus disordered eating in regards to our teens. What are the signs of disordered eating and when should parents be concerned? What are things that moms can do to be helpful if they're concerned that their teen has disordered eating or an eating disorder? And we'll talk about how well-meaning moms can make things worse. Our guests today are Yuna Jada and Dr. Edward Phillips. Yuna Jada graduated from Harvard in 2017 with degrees in cognitive neuroscience and minor in music. She is a concert pianist and composer. Jada created and hosts the health podcast, Food We Need to Talk. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Edward Phillips is Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School and founder of the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine. He has trained over 25,000 clinicians from 115 countries. He lives in Needham, Massachusetts. They recently published Food, We Need to Talk, the science-based, humor-laced, last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. In Yuna's own words, I want this book to be the book I wish I had at 18 before I started all the crazy diets and plans. I want it to communicate the basics of nutrition, exercise, fat loss, metabolism, and health. All the things that I thought were not well understood and largely out of my control. 
perfect for fans of the Maintenance Phase podcast. Food We Need to Talk provides all the information and more for readers to make informed decisions about their health journeys, whether their goal is looking, feeling, or living better. Welcome, Unajada and Dr. Eddie Phillips. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. So the first question that I ask my guests is if you are a parent, and if so, what are the ages of your kids? Yes, I will go first, guys. So I'm actually 55 and I have three kids. (laughs) I am 27. I don't have any kids. Much to the chagrin of my Albanian mother, she really wants grandkids. But I was like, girl, probably not anytime soon. Okay, great. I'm Eddie and I'm 64 and I've got three kids, a son who's 29 and daughters who are 27 and 24. I I got the numbers right. Wonderful. Yeah, my daughter's 27 also. I know that age well. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, guys, you guys are like my perfect parents' child <laughs> dynamic on the podcast. There you go. All right, so y'all just wrote a book called Food We Need to Talk, the science-based, humor-laced last word on eating, diet, and making peace with your body. And that just came out, right? It is coming out July 11th. Okay, so it's coming out. It's coming out very soon. Tell me why you wrote the book and a little bit about the background story. Yes, so I grew up always basically being 10 pounds heavier than I wanted to be. I was never overweight as a child or a teenager, but I grew up with two really skinny sisters. So my parents would always say to my sisters, oh my God, you guys could be models because they are really tall and skinny. And my mom would say to me, Yuna, you could be their manager. And I was like, that is the worst thing I could possibly. So I always grew up kind of restricting food a little bit, not too crazy in high school, but just, you know, I'd only have one piece of pizza at like birthday parties instead of two like everybody else. Or I'd only have half a piece of cake instead of a full piece of cake when we were going out or stuff like that. And then when I got to college, because my parents weren't there anymore to see what I was doing, I went super ham. I was only eating a thousand calories a day. I was running on the treadmill every day. I was ordering weight loss pills online. And that was when I developed a lot of eating disorders. So I developed pretty bad binge eating and bulimia. Unbeknownst to me, of course, I never actually got it diagnosed then, but in retrospect, that's what was going on. And so I had this really kind of harrowing journey with my own health. Like the more I was dieting and restricting food, the more weight I was gaining in the long term. And so, whereas I grew up never being overweight, when I started to super heavily diet is when I actually started to venture into the overweight category. And so when I graduated college and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, one of the emails I sent out was to the health editor at WBUR. And I basically asked her, can I come in and talk to you about your job? And I came in with a paper of ideas. And one of the ideas on the paper was a podcast. And she said, do you have any audio experience? And I was like, no, but I can learn. And so that was how our podcast, Food We Need to Talk, was started. And it was basically on this paper, I told her that it had taken me so long to find the science-based information on nutrition and exercise. And I'd always thought like, oh, I just have to listen to what these Instagram models say, what the people on YouTube say, because they look a certain way, like they know what they're talking about. And that's how I've fallen into a lot of these unhealthy eating behaviors. And then around senior year of college, I finally discovered people that were scientists. And I was like, wait a minute, there's actual science behind all of this. And for some reason, it's just so poorly advertised and poorly marketed that I think a lot of people just have no idea. So she said that I seemed really passionate about it, that I would make a good podcast. 
but she said, you need a co-host. Cause I was only 23 at the time. She's like, we can't just have some 23 year old girl just being like, da -da 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 -da, you know? So she's like, we need another perspective here. And so that's how she introduced me to Eddie, who she had previously worked with. And so that is how the podcast was born. So now it's been about five-ish years that we've been doing the podcast. And that's also how the book came about. And it's been very fun. And I'll let Eddie tell his side of the story now. So I come at this as a physician with a primary interest in exercise and specialties called physical medicine and rehabilitation. And with the understanding that we know what we should be doing in terms of how to live and we we're not doing it. And I kept on waiting in medical school for that lecture on exercise, never really got it. Nutrition was something like what's for lunch. Stress, we covered with an experiential course. And it's kind of crazy, but we're really good at fixing things once they're broken. But what would it take for us to actually understand what to do? Because we know that we should be eating better, sleeping more, having better relationships and exercising adequately, and yet we don't do it. So that's sort of the background. And I got into teaching this to other clinicians through courses at Harvard Medical School, and we've done this for tens of thousands of clinicians. The field that's evolved is called lifestyle medicine. And the next natural step was to then take it sort of direct to consumer or create a tool that these new passionate physicians and other health professionals involved in lifestyle medicine could share. So we did an earlier podcast called The Magic Bill, and I did that with Carrie Goldberg, who's the editor, health editor at the time at WBUR in Boston. We did really well. We won an Edward R. Murrow Award for innovation, and we sort of had that under our belts. And then Yuna came along to Carrie, and she thought, ah, what if the two of them met? What would that look like? And I walked into the meeting with Yuna, who, as you can calculate from our introductions, is the same age as my middle child. And <laughs> I was sort of struck by a lot of similarities. And it turns out over their relationship with food. So this was not originally sort of a primary interest, but it evolved quickly, both because I was working as a parent to help my daughter and then meeting Yuna and sort of understanding what she was going through. And we developed, I think, a lovely relationship, a little parental, paraparental, you know, would describe me as our American dad. And yet, when you don't have like 20 years of baggage, you can sort of dance on that third rail of emotions and not get burnt. So that is the nidus of the podcast. And then once we did the podcast and the first season of it, we were dramatically successful. That led to an offer to write a book to go a little bit deeper and to really help the readers, our listeners, understand more about their bodies, what they should know about metabolism, and how they might actually come to peace with their bodies. So what would the reader come away with? What are some of the insights they would come away with after reading your book? So the book has a lot of really scientific information in it. So there are chapters on metabolism, nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress. But I think for me, at least, the most important takeaway from the book, and I think a big reason why I wrote it, is to stop people from doing what I did at 18 years old. So I think going about health changes for the wrong reasons almost certainly will lead to getting burned in the long run. So I think the biggest takeaway from the book for me was that we should be striving to eat as healthy as possible and to exercise and to be as mentally healthy as possible. So sometimes that means like 
yeah, I want ice cream. It's a hot day. I'm getting ice cream. I'm not going to feel bad about it. But to pursue all of those things without the end goal being a certain weight. So regardless of if you're eating healthier and you're exercising, regardless of whether your weight changes, you are healthier when you're eating better and exercising. So I think the biggest takeaway for me was that the intention behind why you make health changes is just as important as the changes you're making. That's good. To further what Yuna's saying, the reason why you want to make the change, and let's broaden that a little bit and say, what is your purpose writ large? Why are you on this planet? What is your role as a mom, as a dad, as a child, as a therapist, as a doctor, as a pastor? whatever your role is or your multiple roles, what are you hoping to achieve? And when you get down to those questions, and this is why I love hearing these from my patients, you understand that almost all the time, it doesn't actually involve losing weight. It involves being happier, being healthier, being more able, more functional to fulfill roles that either you want or need to do. So I've got folks that have been in relatively poor health, meaning that they are not moving as well as they could. And you know, when that grandchild comes along, now it's all about, huh, you know, like I really want to be able to kneel down and wash the baby in the tub. I want to be able to help my grandchild or the kids are growing up. I want to be able to throw a ball with them. And people get confused and they go like, I guess I should be skinnier. And like, maybe, I, I don't know. Like, what if you were just stronger and more able, would that fulfill your goals? So if our readers come away with understanding what's important to them and working towards that, and then we give them the tools to get there, then hopefully they'll come to peace with their body and be able to fulfill their mission, their aspirations and their purposes. That's my big take home from writing the book. Awesome. Tell me five signs of disordered eating that you need to be on the lookout for. So I think this really depends on who you are, because there's a million signs of disordered eating. But I'd say for me, I think skipping meals was a big sign that nobody really picked up on in my family. Always turning down desserts or treats at parties and stuff like that. Having excuses for why you're not eating, like always saying like you ate somewhere else or, oh, I'm not really hungry are things to look out for. And then just an obsession with calorie counting. You're looking at the backs of packages not eating things because of the calories, and then a hyperfixation on body shape or weight. So this could be weighing yourself all the time, or it could be measuring, it could be like checking for abs in the mirror. So it takes a lot of different forms among different people. But I think it's mostly behaviors around food and around your body that you should be on the lookout for. And I think it can be kind of hard because People can be going about health changes. And for one person, it's a very toxic way of thinking. And for another person, it might not be. So two people might be gluten-free. Somebody who has celiac disease, where actually if they have gluten, it's extremely dangerous for them. And somebody who is orthorexic and is terrified of gluten, like for that person, it's an eating disorder. So I think it's really hard to just tell from behaviors, but you can kind of tell by the way people talk about their body or talk around food, what their mindset is around that. So I think those are all things to look out for. I'll add one to the list, which is that you may not see any of it because eating disorders can be invisible. They're so often pursued in secrecy. As Yoon is telling her story, the secrecy involved going off to college and not having parents around to see it. It could happen as evidence within your own house. So. 
it's great to look for signs and symptoms, but you may miss them because by its nature, someone with an eating disorder so often does it in secret. Yeah. So I've worked with many, many teenage girls. And a lot of the things that you were talking about, Yuna, is they do some of that. You know, they skip their meals. They don't want to eat a dessert. They're checking out their thighs. So when do you think they need professional help? I think it's when it starts to interfere with other aspects of your life. I was a psychology major. I remember the DSM criteria for when, because I would read some of the descriptions of mental disorders. And I'd be like, this is so-and-so. This is exactly like them. They for sure have narcissistic personality disorder. But what it would always say at the bottom, which was a really important part of being diagnosed with a mental disorder, was like, it interferes with three out of the five following spheres of your life. And it's occupation, socializing, blah, 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 all these spheres. And so as I went further and further into my eating disorder, it was really interfering with the rest of my life. Like my entire day was basically dedicated to making sure I was eating little enough. So I wouldn't go out with my friends. I would say no to social gatherings. I would be afraid to go to parties because I wouldn't be able to like properly moderate food. So I think it's the level of distress and then how much it interferes with even like your family life. Like my mom would make homemade food. I'd be like, oh no, I can't eat that because I didn't weigh everything. I wouldn't want to go on vacations because I wouldn't be able to go to the gym. So when it starts to really take over your life and like your life's purpose is your food restriction or getting to a certain weight, that's when I think it's really a big red flag of this is something that needs to be treated versus maybe just something that you need to talk about maybe changing your thoughts around. I think, Colleen, one of the things you're bringing up is one of the great conundrums of parenting, which is like, what do you pay attention to? And if drawing attention to the issue, whether it's about eating or anything else, whether that's going to help or hurt the child. With my wife and I, I think we tried to always come down on the side of it'd be better to attend to something that may be a great concern to the child, to our kid, for fear of ignoring it. And then having one of our kids say, like, how come you never did anything about whatever it is, you know, my my flat feet or my skin or my hair or whatever it was, you know, that they were concerned about. So I would, in this case, err heavily on the side of if there's a hint of concern, bringing it up with your kid and then bringing it up with a trusted health professional. And to add to that, we could go into the formal descriptions of eating disorders, which is somewhere between one to three-ish percent of the population. But now there's a description of 20% of the population having disordered eating, so it's not the formal eating disorders, and they're still troubled and there's still things that you can do. You know, rather than looking for that exact diagnostic line, I would err on if any of the things <laughs> that Eunice described, you know, like you're for my daughter, just the preoccupation and a sort of faraway look when we would sit and eat because she was like so busy calculating and maneuvering and avoiding. If there's a hint of any of that, I would go and seek some sort of help. And a lot of the behaviors in disordered eating and eating disorders are the same behaviors. So for example, if you binge once a month, you don't qualify as having binge eating disorder, but just because the frequency increases, it now gets qualified as an eating disorder if it's like at least once a week. And so thinking about who decided these cutoffs, you know, it's a continuum. It's not that just because you're binging once a week, now all of a sudden it's a problem and it wasn't a problem when it's once a month. So I think keeping in mind that 
if you are being distressed by behaviors around food in your body, maybe catching them earlier also stops them from developing into a more serious issue. So would you say that disordered eating is kind of like on the path to getting a eating disorder? Oh, yes. If you look at the description of disordered eating in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Illnesses, all the behaviors are the exact same behaviors in all the eating disorder categories. And it is just the frequency and severity that is different. So it's 100% on the path. When I think back on growing up in high school and in college, there were so many people I knew that had disordered eating behaviors and it was just completely normal. Like, I just think it's part of being a teenage girl, unfortunately, in today's society. So when prom was coming up, like all my friends would be on diets, they would get waist trainers, which like, I don't even know where you get that as a high schooler, but they would get waist trainers. Me and my friends would talk about other people's bodies all the time. We would talk about like dieting all the time. And it was completely normal. And even the adult women I knew were always, oh, I'll have the dressing on the side. Oh, I'll just have water. Oh, no, I can't have that. I'm trying to lose weight, blah, blah, blah. So it was so normalized and common that it didn't even strike me as strange. But I think it's important to remember that for some people, they might have these disordered eating tendencies, or they might have negative thoughts about their body, and it never goes past that. And then for other people, they're very predisposed to traits like perfectionism and being very type A, taking things to extremes. So for those people that have a lot of black and white thinking, that's the type of population that is more in danger of taking disordered eating to becoming full-blown eating disorders. So these behaviors can happen to such a wide variety of people. And just because someone has disordered eating does not mean they'll develop an eating disorder. But also there is a subset of the population where these behaviors become much more high risk. I think it fits with some other trend in the larger medical world. So for instance, there are cutoffs for when you're diabetic, but now there are cutoffs for being pre-diabetic. There are cutoffs for hypertension, and now we describe pre-hypertension. Obesity, we don't use the phrase pre-obesity, we just call it overweight. In the therapy field, there was a series of books, I think it started with something like Almost Alcoholic, which was, okay, you might not meet the criteria, but you'll be behaving as if. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of this zone around the full formal diagnosis, and it's a time to take action. You know, it's a lot better for my patients to come to me saying, I'm not their primary doctor, and they go, you know, how can I help you? And they go, well, I'm pre-diabetic. My toes over the line, I got to do something. So they have a lot of opportunity to not progress towards diabetes. Similarly, if we identify disordered eating behaviors early, then we can hopefully forestall the slipping towards a, a formal eating disorder. That makes sense. So is clean eating code for disordered eating? I think that's another topic where if we could only live in somebody's head, we would know the answer. And unfortunately, we cannot. I have friends who I would describe have a very like, quote unquote, clean diet. So not really any processed food. And they don't have any emotional anxiety around it. Like I'm thinking of my roommate right now, she eats an extremely healthy diet of completely unprocessed food 100% of the time when she's home. And she had to be in Europe for a month at conferences for work. And so she basically had to eat conference food for a month and she wasn't stressed about it. She wasn't worried about gaining weight. She was just like, oh, I have to eat this shitty food for a month. And then she came back home and she went back to what she was eating. And for me, when I was clean eating, it's like if I had a trip coming up, I was stressing about it weeks in advance and being like, 
oh god how am i gonna find the food i need there and like oh i just won't eat there i'll just blah, 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 whatever it's like all these kind of distressful thoughts around it so i think for some people clean eating can be distressful but for other people it's just the way they eat ideally if we took all psychology out of it and we could all eat as minimally processed of a diet as possible i do think that would be ideal for everybody's physical health but Unfortunately, in the food environment we live in today, like that's just not really the case for a lot of people. And it would lead a lot of people to feel very restricted and not happy and not enjoy a lot of things they want to enjoy. And so I think trying to maintain a balance of like, yeah, I try to eat as well as I can when I can, but also I treat myself when I want to treat myself and I don't feel bad about it is kind of the thin line we're all trying to walk. Mm -hmm. And I, I would sort of share the case of my family where my wife and I I guess we might have used the phrase clean eating or we aspire to eat as cleanly as possible. We try not to bring home ultra processed foods. We tried to create an environment in which the kids, you know, had access to candy in the house, but not easily accessible. You might have to go up on a step stool to find it, but it wasn't forbidden. But then from there, the individual psychology of living in an environment like that dictates what happens. So we have three kids. Our middle child became anorexic. And if you followed her path, she would say that she was exposed to orthorexia, ortho being like straight or the clean eating, which is its own disorder. And when I attempted to apologize to her for causing her anorexia, she said, well, I, you know, there was a natural experiment going on. My brother and my sister were in the same environment and they didn't develop anorexia. So maybe it's not all on you. So, you know, we're back to that kind of squishy area of clean eating could be clean for you and his roommate and be a negative for someone else following what ostensibly the same behavior. Yeah. So my audience is moms and they're probably thinking, what do I say when I see like my daughter is either not eating or if she's just eating? eats the whole bag of Oreos and a whole bag of chips and eats tons of ice cream. Or maybe it could be the sun too. Like, what do you say? Like what's helpful and what's not helpful? I think uh, speaking from personal experience, comments about weight or how you look were the most detrimental to me. I was never eating unhealthily, but I was always getting comments about my weight and it made me so self-conscious, so unconfident. And it led to a lot of, I think, emotional eating down the line. Like at first, I didn't notice this pattern. But as time went on, I would notice when I was in college, if I ever went home and saw my family, and I got a comment about my weight, like that would trigger a binge episode that day. So it was a pretty immediate like one to one correlation. So I think tying food to the way you look or what you weigh is a big red flag to me. And also the way you talk about your own body in front of your kids, I think is so powerful. So if your daughter or son is always hearing you say like, oh, I look so fat today. I look so bad today. Oh, I can't wear that because it would look horrible on me or whatever. Like mm -hmm. that is sending a subliminal message to them constantly that like, it's okay to be dissatisfied with your body. And like, this is the way we talk about our body and we should change our body if it's not the way we want it to be and all of these things. So I think being mindful of how you talk about your body is really important. And then asking if they're eating like a whole sleeve of Oreos or a whole bag of chips and not really caring like asking the question, oh, are you okay? I noticed that you seemed kind of down because if it's a way to cope with emotions, 
it's not really the food that's the problem. It's like they're using the food to escape some negative emotion. If it's things like not eating, it's, you know, maybe you say, hey, like, I was thinking we could cook this for dinner. Do you want to help make this with me? And then we can eat together. And I think Eddie can probably speak better to this because he's probably had to have this conversation with his daughter. But I just know with my parents, the conversation was just never really approached until the podcast episodes came out and they actually heard it. And I had to have a conversation with them before the podcasting came out. And basically, I met with everybody in my family. And I was just like, I don't ever want to hear a comment about my weight or body ever again. I don't care if it's good. I don't care if it's bad. Because even praising weight loss is still furthering the problem of this hyperfixation on how you look. I'll go back with respect, Colleen, to the question and maybe tweak the question. Long before you say something, it's maybe not what you, you know, say to your daughter, say to your son, but what is it that you're doing? What kind of model are you setting up? You know, are you the parent who's sitting there on the sidelines telling your kid to exercise? That's not going to be as valuable as saying, I'm you know, going out for a walk, you want to join me? You know, are you the parent who is sitting there with a beer in your hands telling your 17-year-old that they shouldn't drink? Or are you the parent who engages the kids, even younger, or actually at any age, to say, I'm going to the supermarket, do you want to come? And if you don't want to come, what do you want me to buy? And could you help me make dinner? And by the way, we're going to sit down and have dinner together. Because food is much more than just fuel. It's much more than just emotions. It's the way that we express our humanity for each other. We break bread together. Now, if you're gluten-free or whatever, we can come up with another, another phrase there. But the idea is that are you setting an example of living well, as you were saying, and happily within your own body? And then if you're eating a sleeve of Oreos, like you don't have too much to say to your kid. Then we're up to that horrific choice back to where we were a few minutes ago. You know, when do you say something? Is it better to say something or not? If what you're expressing is sort of a weight stigma, there are writers out there and there's some research that's, that suggests that being stigmatized for your weight, the result of maybe eating too much, is possibly or probably worse than the results of being overweight. So you don't want to stigmatize your child. On the other hand, it's also our responsibility to say that a sleeve of double-stuffed Oreos is not in your best interest. Enjoying one of them might be great. So there is no easy answer, but I would just go back to, you know, look at your own behaviors and see where your kids can join in with you and hopefully something will be healthier. Eddie, can you tell the story of how did you know when to approach your daughter or how did that whole journey come about of like you actually talking to her about it? Uh, so mind you, I'm a doctor, as is my wife. And <laughs> so you'd think that I've known something a little bit more about eating disorders. And yet our kids, we set out to make them as independent as possible to give them both roots and wings. And with that, our daughter flew off across the Atlantic to go to school in Scotland. Mm. So when she got into the worst of her eating disorder and dropped too much weight, and this, this was in the context of over-exercising, and then broke her ribs, so she couldn't even like over-exercise, but you know, just stopped eating because she wasn't exercising. By the time she came home, she had dropped so much weight that it was pretty obvious. And then quite dramatically, like from the airport, I took her to go get an EKG and labs done because I was fearing for her cardiac dysrhythmia related to you know, how much weight she had lost. 
So in answer to your question, you know, it took like a hammer, like over my head to see what was going on. And even then we entered into the difficulty of, you know, you could be hospitalized and stay over. And my daughter negotiated a partial hospitalization, which meant that she would come home and basically not eat. And then this was over Christmas and we had planned to go to Hawaii for a long, long time. And, you know, the wise parent would have said, we're staying home for your health. But I could show you lovely pictures of myself and my skinny <laughs> daughter on the beach in Hawaii and lots of errors along the way. You know, we were there for her, but, you know, not always making the right choices along with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think what's not helpful is for a parent, and it's easy to do for sure, is being judgmental because you can be the model. You can be the mom who does yoga all the time and goes to the gym all the time. And your teen doesn't want to do that. And then you can be judgmental mm-hmm. about why are you eating that? Like I've seen a lot of the dynamic of the mom being kind of the skinny one. And then the girl doesn't have that same body shape. Mm-hmm. And then kind of a judgment, like, do you really need that cookie? Do you really need that? You know, aren't you going to get out and get some exercise? So judgment is not helpful because you're still like you're saying, you know, you're still focusing on weight, you know? So that's one thing I've seen. So another question I would have is when a teen graduates from high school, their big challenges is not making good grades in college. It's learning how to self-manage. And so one of the biggest things in terms of self-managing is around food. So do you have advice either for the moms who are trying to help their teens who are going off to college around that? Or what do these 18-year-olds need to hear as they kind of go into college around food? I often like to broaden the conversation to go beyond food. Because food, as you can tell just from this whole conversation, is rather fraught. Mm -hmm. We're very tribalistic about what we eat and what we don't eat. And a much safer area could be, and I would give this choice to my patients, to my kids, to whoever I'm talking to, you know, is there a change that you might be interested in making around fill in the blank? It could be your sleep, your relationships, your substance Mm -hmm. use, how much exercise you're getting. And sometimes that's just a lot easier and people are more willing to make the change. And I guess I have a question for you, Colleen. You and I have a chance to sit down with a therapist. Is that does it work, or I like to think it works, to encourage my kids, my patients to just do a small experiment and to say, you know, how do you feel after you went out for a 10 minute walk? How do you feel after you eat the third cookie? You know, how do you feel after mm-hmm. you know, staying up later than you mm-hmm. didn't, than you wanted to? So I guess I sort of start with a more neutral area. Or actually ask people, which of these is the most important for you? And where are you willing to make a change? Mm -hmm. Something that I think Eddie brought to my attention that I think really helped me with this was that the last thing you're going to remember about college is the food and your weight and how many calories you eat each day. That is like the least important thing about your college experience. And the amount of time I wasted counting calories, 
not going to meals, not going to social events because I was afraid of the food aspect is so sad to me in retrospect because the memories I have from college are all with my friends. That's what I remember most from college. So I know there's a lot of anxiety around the freshman 15 and being in a new food environment and also drinking is introduced in college. And so then you have this new source of a bunch of extra calories. And I think a lot of girls and guys also probably worry about that as well. But I wish that I had really thought to myself that college is such a special time and that it's such a fun time. And Eddie said too, that the dining hall is not just a place for food. It's a place where you get to meet new people and talk to them about what they're studying and what they're doing in life. And it's just such a beautiful social experience that worrying about the food, I really think takes away from some of the best parts of college. And then also just having good cooking skills. If you are going to a college where you have an apartment and you're cooking your own apartment, establishing how to make some of your favorite meals before you actually go off to college, I think is great. And if not, it's like having the skills to navigate a dining hall. So like dining halls always are kind of tricky. But if you know that you usually feel better when you do have enough protein and you do have enough healthy fats, like having the nutritional education to navigate all of those situations, I think is also really, really important. Mm -hmm. In my experience, because I've met with lots of girls who have struggled with eating disorders or disordered eating. And to me is exactly what y'all are saying is that their life is organized around food and everything. If they're bulimic, it's, you know, where they can get rid of the food or safe foods or all of that. And so a lot of times I have the girls who are about to go to college, they lead with, I'm so stressed about the food. I'm so stressed about the freshman 15. And so part of what I do is kind of what y'all are talking about is expanding that to what will really bring them joy. Like you said, it's the relationships. But I think you have to deal with the anxiety first. For these girls and boys, you know, they're coming out of a culture. It's not just they're creating that by themselves. It's a cultural thing that they're in. And if they're going into a sorority, it's a cultural thing. They're going through rush. They are feeling that pressure of being rejected because of body size. So I agree with you of switching that to how amazing the body is because you can do these amazing things with your body. If you didn't have a body, you wouldn't exist. You know, the fun you can have, the playfulness. But I think to me, that is one of the first steps. And Eddie, I liked your question, you know, and I think that's about managing is how did that feel when you ate this or when you didn't eat this? And so that they're starting to see that as kind of their own experiment. And I think, too, what you're saying about clean food, a lot of times, like the diet mentality is you can't enjoy or savor food. And so you're just eat lettuce, you know, but a lot of that clean food is like, it's amazing. You can be a foodie and have really great food. And so getting them to see pleasure in food. So I agree with you. To me, disordered eating is like so limited. It's this really tiny, tiny, tiny thing that they focus about. And I think that first step of moving out of disordered eating is starting to expand to all of life. But they're not going to jump from that real restricted 
way to, oh yeah, that'll be really fun going to a dining hall. (laughs) Now, I think what you're saying is so important. I know I still to this day, I feel like I don't savor my food as much. And I think it's because I spent so many years just not even caring about taste at all. Like food was just for a purpose and it was to manipulate my weight. And I noticed all my friends that had healthy relationships with food, they cared so much more about flavorings and like, oh my God, have you tried this place? Oh my God, we have to go try this. This tasted so good. And I'm like, I don't care how many calories is it? I don't care. And I think taking that joy away from food also can cause overeating because you're not really eating food for the taste anymore. You're eating food either to change your emotion or you're eating food to lose weight. I think that's like a very dangerous place to be with food. And then I also just want to say about changing your mentality. Something that I think really helped me think about whether or not what I was doing was actually achieving the goals I wanted was being asked like when you've been at your thinnest, were you the happiest? Because when you ask people like, why do you want to lose weight? Why do you want to be this size? Oh, well, I'll look better then. And why do you want to look better? I'll be happy when I look better. More people will ask me on dates. These certain clothes will fit me, whatever. And you get like the crux of why do you want to be thinner? And it's usually like, I think when I'm thinner, I'll be happy. I mean, some people have, I think when I have this amount of money, I'll be happy. I think when I have this house, I'll be happy. And we kind of know, like, that's just not true. Like having a certain salary is not going to change your happiness level. But for some reason with our body, we do think like when I have this certain body size, I'll be happy and I'll be totally content with myself. And so if you ever ask people, like if their weight has ever fluctuated, think back to when you were your thinnest. How did you feel? And for a lot of people, it's usually they are their most miserable because it's when they are most restrictive It's when they are seeing their friends the least. It's when they're not allowing themselves to socialize with anybody else in their lives. And they're very, very unhappy. And it's like, okay, so being a certain weight did not lead to this confidence and this comfortableness with yourself that you thought it would lead to. So maybe it's not the weight that's the issue. And maybe it's that you actually just want to feel comfortable in your body. And you think you're going to achieve that through your weight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. So any last advice for the moms listening? I think that everybody is so hyper aware of their body. And I think sometimes family members forget that. And so they'll point out things about your body if somebody's gained weight, if somebody's lost weight, if somebody's looking different. I think it's important to remember that like everybody knows what's going on with their body and their body is their own personal property and our bodies serve us for our whole lives. There's so much more to our bodies than just the way they look and just our weight. And so remembering that everybody's body is their own business is just an important thing for us all to carry throughout our lives. And as I look at my kids now that they're growing up beyond their teenage years, I'm reminded that the most important thing is my relationship with them and that to not harm that in any way, because we're in it for the long haul, right? I hope to live a long life. I hope for them to be with me. And the most important thing is the relationship and not to drive them towards anything, (laughs) whether it's a career that I think they should be interested in and they're not or some other behavior. And I think from this conversation, I'm wondering like the test case and probably the most difficult conversation remains around food. And if there's something difficult that needs to be said, say it, but be supportive. And I love your point, Colleen, you know, not to be judgmental, but just to be, you know, I'm here for you. If you're making a change or want to talk about it, I'm here for you. So that's my parenting advice. Great. It's great advice. Well, thank you so much for being here. So where can people order your book or learn more about you and connect? 
So our book is available on basically all book platforms, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. You can get the audio book on Audible, which is read by Eddie and me. So <laughs> if you want to hear Eddie and me talk for 10 hours, that's uh, super fun. <laughs> and you can find that online anywhere, obviously. You can find our podcast, Food We Need to Talk, on all podcast platforms. And you can also find any information about anything we're doing on our website, foodweneedtotalk.com. Sounds great. Thank you all so much. Thank Thank you so much, Colleen. This was such a great conversation. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, and that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.